From the minds of the suspicious, this is Conspiracy. Karen Silkwood has been the subject of numerous articles, books, and a major movie. But only a few people know what really happened to her. Welcome back to Conspiracy. This is Emil Ahangarzadeh, and in this episode, we're going to examine the details of Karen Silkwood's controversial life and mysterious death. So let's get started with some of the history. On November 13th, 1974, Karen Silkwood left a group of co-workers at the Hub Cafe in Crescent, Oklahoma, and she was headed to a crucial meeting with a New York Times reporter. On her way out, she told them that she was planning to show the reporter proof that the plutonium plant where they all worked, named Kermagee's Cimarron River plant, had repeatedly covered up safety violations and falsified records. But she never made it to her meeting. A little more than seven miles outside of Crescent, Silkwood's car went flying off the straight highway and crashed into a concrete culvert, silencing her forever. The official statements claim that Silkwood fell asleep at the wheel, but evidence suggests another conclusion. Soon after she started working for Kerr McGee in 1972, Karen Silkwood joined the local branch of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union. In the spring of 1974, she was elected to the governing committee and began to voice her concerns about the company's safety record. She believed Kerr McGee was sloppy in its handling of radioactive materials and indifferent to the health of its workers. She became even more concerned when several co-workers were directly exposed to plutonium, perhaps the most toxic substance on Earth, and a production speed-up that required employees to work 12-hour shifts increased the danger. On August 1st, 1974, Silkwood herself was contaminated when airborne plutonium entered the room in which she was working. She began worrying about the effects of the company's safety lapses on her own health and that of her co-workers, so she began carrying a notebook around with her to record the infractions that she observed. On September 26th, she and two other local union officials flew to Washington, D.C. to meet with national OCAW leaders. They alleged serious health and safety violations and charged that plant documents had been falsified to conceal defective fuel rods. This charge had very deep and very grave consequences, not only for the people in the plant, but for the entire atomic industry and the welfare of the country. If badly made pins were placed into the reactor without deficiencies being caught, there could be an incident exposing thousands of people to radiation. After presenting her charges in Washington, Silkwood returned to Kermagee and continued to document the safety violations that she'd observed on the job. On Tuesday, November 5th, Silkwood was in the metallography lab where she was handling plutonium in a safety case called a glove box. When she finished her work, monitoring devices revealed that she had been contaminated again, this time 
from her hands all the way up to her scalp. The contamination on her coveralls was up to 40 times the company limit. Any exposure above the company limit required emergency decontamination, scrubbing repeatedly with a mixture of Tide and Clorox, which left Silkwood's skin raw and stinging. Within a few days, she noted that it hurt to cry because the salt in her tears burned her skin. Health officials required Silkwood to supply urine and fecal samples so they could monitor the radioactivity level in her system. Samples taken over the next few days showed new, extremely high levels of radiation. Baffled by the source of the contamination, officials eventually checked her apartment. They found that it was so contaminated that most of its contents had to be removed and buried. While officials gutted her apartment, Kermagee lawyers interrogated Silkwood, insinuating that she had smuggled plutonium out of the plant. Her health began to deteriorate. She began to lose weight and had trouble sleeping. A series of doctors prescribed sedatives to relieve her anxiety. Now, terrified by the trauma of decontamination scrubbings, the burial of her belongings, and the high levels of contamination in her body, Karen Silkwood believed that she was actually dying. She spent November 10th through the 12th in Los Alamos, New Mexico, undergoing tests to assess how much radiation she had absorbed. Doctors determined that she was in no imminent danger. The amount of plutonium that her body had absorbed was below the maximum absorption that cannot be exceeded without risk, but no one could assure her that the radioactivity would not lead to cancer or other health problems in the future. Then... On November 13th, six days after the contamination was discovered in her house, Silkwood drove to meet a reporter from the New York Times with documents she believed would prove Kermagee's criminal neglect. En route, her car veered across the road and down the left-hand shoulder and slammed head-on into a concrete culvert, killing her. Now, the official explanation of Karen Silkwood's death is that she brought it on herself. She took too many tranquilizers and dozed off while driving. Uh, An autopsy revealed that her blood, stomach, and liver contained methaqualone, a sleep-inducing drug, and it was surmised that she fell asleep at the wheel, according to the um, Encyclopedia of American Scandal. Justice Department and FBI investigations found no wrongdoing. Now, this was possible. To cope with insomnia, changes in her work shift, and growing tension at the plant, Silkwood uh, had gotten a prescription for sleeping pills. Her boyfriend, a guy named Drew Stevens, says that she had taken them for tranquilization, not for sleep, especially during the last week of her life. But colleagues who had been with Silkwood shortly before the accident, said she appeared alert, spoke clearly, and acted normally. It would never have crossed my mind that she might not be capable of driving a car safely, said one of her co-workers. What's more, the road her car went off was perfectly straight, and Karen was an excellent driver. She'd won several road rallies in previous years. When Silkwood left her colleagues to meet with the reporter from the New York Times, she was carrying a brown manila folder and a large notebook. 
One co-worker who had been at the Hub Cafe recounted some of Silkwood's last words. And this was found in Ms. Magazine. The uh, co-worker said, She then said there was one thing she was glad about, that she had all the proof concerning the health and safety conditions in the plant and concerning falsification. And as she said this, she clenched her hands more firmly on the folder and the notebooks that she was holding. Silkwood's manila folder and notebook disappeared after the accident. A trooper at the scene reported stuffing the papers back into the car, but they were gone when it was checked a day later. The road was straight. If, as the police suggested, she fell asleep, her car would probably have drifted to the right because of the road's centerline, or or crown, and the pull of gravity. But instead, it crossed the road and went off the left shoulder. Experts disagreed about the meaning of the tire marks at the accident. Police said that her car left two sets of rolling tracks with no evidence of having attempted to break or control the car. An investigator hired by the OCAW, however, thought the car had been out of control as if it had been hit or pushed by another car. Experts also disagreed about a scratch along the side of the car. Police said it was made when the car was towed away from the culvert, but the OCAW analyst said microscopic exams showed metal and rubber fragments in the scratch, as if another car had bumped Silkwoods. Several years after the accident, family members filed a lawsuit against Kermit claiming that the company intentionally contaminated Silkwood. In 1979, an Oklahoma jury ordered Kermagee to pay Silkwood's estate more than $10.5 million in damages. The decision against Kermagee was later overturned on appeal because the award was ruled to have infringed on the U.S. government's exclusivity in regulating safety in the nuclear power industry. Four years later, however, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that courts could impose punitive damages on the nuclear power industry for violations of safety. Kerr-McGee eventually settled the suit for $1.3 million. Under the out-of-court agreement, the company admitted no guilt for the automobile accident. If Silkwood was murdered, could agents of the U.S. government be responsible? At least 40 pounds of plutonium, the active ingredient in nuclear warheads, were missing from the Kermagee plant. Silkwood was among the first to suggest this, and company officials later confirmed it. According to the Progressive, the Justice Department, ignoring evidence that suggested the possibility of foul play at the accident site, shut down its investigation of Karen Silkwood's death early in 1974, with a -a four-and-a-half-page summary report dismissing the possibility of murder or any relationship of missing plutonium to the case. 
According to Rebel Magazine, every attempt to get the government to release related intelligence files had been replied to by the Justice Department with claims of national security and state secrets. The FBI even tried to get a permanent gag order against Silkwood attorneys, forbidding public disclosure of what they were finding. Attorneys working on the lawsuit brought by Silkwood's estate alleged that there was a relationship, and perhaps a conspiracy, between Kerr McGee and the FBI. These attorneys said that Silkwood was being spied on and that transcripts of her private conversations were later passed from a Kerr McGee official to both an FBI agent and an author, alleged to have CIA and Navy intelligence links, who later wrote a disparaging book about Silkwood's activities. Attempting to clarify the relationship between Kerr McGee, the FBI, and the author, Silkwood attorney Danny Sheehan repeatedly pressed the author in court to tell who had commissioned her book. The FBI objected 30 times, citing national security. Finally, after conferring with FBI officials, the judge told Sheehan the information that was sought was sinister and secret and should never see the light of day. The Oklahoma City Police Department also appears to have been involved in Kermagee spying operations. Silkwood Estate investigators insist that they found the OCPD, the Police Department Intelligence Unit officers on Kermagee's security payroll during the time Silkwood was spied on, according to Rebel Magazine. Moreover, an FBI source claimed that the Police Department's Intelligence Unit had been infiltrated by either CIA or National Security Agency undercover agents and that the uh, Oklahoma City Police Department gleaned FBI surveillance reports on Silkwood were transmitted via a NSA code classified top secret. Sheehan, still trying to uncover possible CIA links to the case, pressed on until finally, he says, he was warned by a former Carter White House source to call his investigators off. According to Rebel Magazine, this source had at one point told Sheehan, quote, You're in way over your head. You don't have any idea how sensitive this issue is. You'd better contact your man and tell him to stand down. They'll kill him, and I promise you, no one will do anything about it. As for the missing plutonium, the English weekly The New Statesman suggests that there is evidence that the material was sold on the black market to South Africa, Israel, or Iran under the Shah. Of course, in my opinion, Silkwood had that kind of evidence. That's why she was probably killed. If you're interested in further investigating this topic, I would recommend a couple of sources to you. Again, I've cited that Rebel Magazine article. It was uh, written in February 20th of 1984 by Anthony Kimmery. That's K-I-M-M-E-R-Y. The name of the article was The Real Enemies of Karen Silkwood. The Progressive Magazine in January of 1981 also published an article called Karen Silkwood, The Deepening Mystery by Jeffrey Stein. And the Ms. Magazine article by B.J. Phillips was called The Case of Karen Silkwood. 
That's going to do it for this episode. I'd love your feedback. Direct your browser to conspiracy.podbean.com and send me an email or leave a comment about this episode. Also, I'd love to learn what conspiracies you're interested in. Send me a shout and break it down for me. Who knows? Maybe I'll take you up on your suggestion. I'm at conspiracy.podbean.com or on iTunes under Conspiracy. This is Emil Ahangazade reminding you to keep your head about you while all else are losing theirs.